Hey, it's Brian Cook, your host here. Wanted to let you know we now have t-shirts. Would you like to support the podcast? Have you noticed that I can't get a sponsor because this show's too filthy? Hey, it'd be great if some people ordered shirts. They're great-looking shirts. Go to estoymerchandise.com, E-S-T-O-Y merchandise.com. You'll find competitive erotic fanfiction on the right-hand side. Click on that, and you can order shirts. There's men's and women's sizes. It's a great design by my buddy Mark Palm in Seattle. He does all of our amazing poster art. Uh, please support the podcast. It would help us out a ton. That's estoymerchandise.com. E-S-T-O-Y merchandise.com. Now entering Nerdist.com. Hello and welcome to episode 141 of the Competitive Erotic Fanfiction Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Cook, and you found the internet's number one most trusted source for Muppet boners and horny loners. September 8th, I think that's tonight, we're at the Capital City Theater in Salem, depending on when this podcast goes up. Sorry, it's late. September 9th, Helium Comedy Club in Portland, Oregon. September 27th, Tacoma Comedy Club, Tacoma, Washington. October 25th, Union Hall in Brooklyn. And today we've got round two from a show recorded May 8th, 2015 at the Bridgetown Comedy Festival. Featuring TJ Chambers, Caitlin Gill, Beth Stelling, and Guy Branham. Reading pieces they wrote based upon audience suggestions. First you hear them draw topics, then we will fast forward into the future to hear the finished pieces. Enjoy. Five or six minutes... While I read you my latest masterpiece, do we happen to have any Tom Waits fans in the house tonight? Well, this is for you. Dear Penthouse Forum, it was a hot night in Sheboygan. I pitched a tent out by the railroad tracks and thumbed it into town to find some company. Her name was Lucille. She was tall for a dwarf. Lucille had one flipper hand, a milky eye, and a full back tattoo of a stillborn calf. In other words, she was perfect. I found her down by the wharf, like all good women. And without a word, I approached her and handed her a $20 bill and half of a liverwurst sandwich I'd stolen from the five and dime that afternoon. She nodded it hungrily as she led me to her place. Lucille and I climbed the rickety stairs to her cold water flat. There were roaches on the floor and dishes in the sink. There were baby clothes in the corner, but no other sign of a baby. An old man with two wooden legs sat in the corner, strumming the cigar box guitar. He likes to watch, she said. As a rat scurried across my feet. The whole place smelled like someone who had expressed an old hound dog's anal glands into a rusty bucket of squid bait. I have never been more aroused. I undid my overalls as Lucille pulled her tits out from the top of her burlap dress. It looked like something a gypsy would get buried in. I think she made it herself, but I didn't have the heart to ask. Also, Lucille's cleft palate for tongue made her speech so garbled that conversing was nearly impossible. But that was okay by me. We weren't there to talk. 
Lucille slapped at my balls with her flipper hand like a trained seal at a low-rent traveling circus. My old man used to say, son, eating a hooker's pussy is like painting another man's barn. But I was never much for poetry. I laid her down on what I now realize wasn't a bed at all, but a stack of old newspapers covered in a sheet so old and yellow that it looked like it should have the Magna Carta written on it. I hoisted her dress around her waist and her gash looked like a possum that had been hit by a car. Exactly how I like it. I started slurping at her like a hobo eating chili and she moaned like a war widow. The old man in the corner stopped strumming his guitar. He'd untied his own hobo bindle and was now choking himself with the red bandana while he worked his gnarled wizard staff. I paid him no mind. I had work to do. I really got in there like an old alley cat on a moonlit night licking the last oily drops from a tin of sardines. My tongue explored every nook and cranny of her musky cram cauldron. And when she finally came, she let out a sound like a cranky billy goat falling down a flight of stairs. She grabbed me by the hair and mashed my face into her twat like she was house training a disobedient Labrador retriever. When she had her fill, I flipped her over and pulled her up on her knees. Her butthole winked at me like a priest with a secret. She knew what she wanted. I tried to ease it in, but Lucille knew how she liked it, and she liked her ass hammered bone dry. It was like working a butter churn full of nipples and zipper teeth. I jammed it in deeper and deeper, and with every thrust, she bellowed louder than a barnyard in birthing season. I couldn't hold off any longer. I pulled out and dropped a load on her back so big it landed with a slap like a wet mop hitting the deck of an old pirate ship. We both collapsed in a sweaty and panted. The old man came and began weeping quietly, repeating the name Stephen over and over again. I picked up his cigar box guitar and played a couple choruses of Buffalo Sally. You all know the words. Anyway, I never saw Lucille again, but every time I eat a bowl of watered-down clam chowder. I think about her milky eye. I tear up like a thing that looks like another thing. <laughs> Yours truly, Tom Waits. Thank you so much. If I can get those suggestions, and please welcome your now two comics who'll be writing based upon your suggestions. Thank you, Brittany. Give it up for Guy Branham, Caitlin Gill, TJ Chambers, and Beth Stelling, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, wait a minute, Mike. 
for these fabulous performers, ladies and gentlemen. Clap your hands. I'm going to draw one suggestion. If Caitlin likes it, she can take it and run with it. If she doesn't like it, I will draw a second one. But then you will all get to vote with your applause on which one she has to write. Caitlin, your first option is share. Guy Brennan, ladies and gentlemen. That's so good, but if the second one isn't as good, you'll pick share. What's the next one? All right. Uh... my show here. It's a lot of words, guys. A lot of words, Portland. Mystery Science Theater 3000. So, we leave it to you. Who wants to hear Share? Mystery Science Theater. It's a comedy festival after all. Caitlin Gale, let her hear it. Keep it going, we're best selling. Host of the podcast, Quit Yelling with Beth Snelling. That's your podcast, right? Cool. It's fine. Okay. Uh, one, one suggestion per slip. Did I mention that nine times at the top of the show? So many words. So many words. I'm scared. Good thing there's a whole bag of them. Picky pants. The Jonestown Massacre. How do you feel about that, Beth? This is ironic for me. Why is that? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, okay, whatever. I was one time in a cop drama about four years ago, <laughs> and I played a murderer's ex-roommate, and one of my lines was, she went totally Jonestown. <laughs> Quick question. We've been on set together before. After you delivered that line, were they like more, more energy? We're disgusting. Uh, how do you feel about Jonestown Massacre? I feel like, well, I kind of feel like how Caitlin felt. Like maybe we should hear another one and then we can pick. Because <laughs> if I pick Jonestown, it's kind of like, what am I into, you know? <laughs> Sexually. <laughs> you set a record, Portland. Ooh, greatest American hero. Okay, but my only trouble is I don't what I don't know what that is. So. Uh, Google.com. Well, you can boo it, but <laughs> I'm just letting you know that it will be more fun if if I know what I'm writing about. I'm just saying that. You're big Jonestowny. I'm just saying I don't know what great American hero is, and you can hate me for that, but I don't know what it is. Everybody okay, relax. You make something up. I feel like this has gotten out of hand. Let's hear the Jonestown Massacre. <laughs> Greatest American hero. Yeah, fuck you! <laughs> I'm on your side. All right, best selling Jonestown Massacre. Let her hear it. Keep it going for TJ Chambers. The stage was littered with more crumpled papers than a pot rollers with MS. I don't know what the hell we're doing now. We're doing it now? <laughs> of the Hidden Temple. Facing on board. Local reference. I feel like they're going to vote for it 
no matter what. I feel like you're pro- shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up for the rest of the night. Shut up. Give me the second. Give me the second. Right. Give me the second. All right. Your next option is garbage pail kids. So, who wants to? Who wants to hear Legends of the Hidden Temple? Who wants to hear Garbage Pail Kids? You made the right choice. It's Garbage Pail Kids. TJ Chambers and keep it going for Guy Branham. And Frank. Yes. We'll see you in a bit. Please keep that energy going here. Oh my God, ladies and gentlemen, could it be TJ Chambers? I believe it's TJ Chambers. Let him hear it. With your hands and your hearts, all the way to the microphone. You can do better than that for your first round two competitor. Oh, thanks, guys. He brought me a beer. Clap for that. Show's over. TJ wins. Hi, guys. Thanks for the suggestion. I want to take a shower. It was a hot August day in 1985. A year that history will remember is probably the most useless in the entire 1980s, which is saying a lot. Pulitzer Prize-winning cartoonist Art Spiegelman heard his rotary phone clanging like the battling robots of a Transformers movie. Yet another piece of pop culture that our candy-ass generation has woefully over-nostalgia. On the other line was John Benson, the international vice president of separating kids from their fucking money at the Topps Trading Card Company. (laughs) Art, he barked, we need your magic. Baseball card sales are sagging like the biceps of a slugger who's too far between androgen cycles. What do you got? Art thought long and hard, like a big black cop's baton. They carry batons. And he came up with a combination of his two favorite things, puns and little kids with fucked up deformities. <laughs> Slamming down the receiver, he picked up his pen or pencil or watercolors or oil paints. I don't know, does it look like I went to art school? I have a real job. And he began to sketch. Sorry, art school person. Ideas spewed from his brain like Vesuvian geysers of hot computer printer paper. You know, it's kind of warm when it comes out. He smiled a wry smile to himself as the first character took shape. Doug Plug, a small child inexplicably shaped like a fire hydrant with a dog pissing on him. Spiegelman knew that this would tick every box on the fucked up fetishist questionnaire. Squat little kid shaped like a fire hydrant slash dick and rendered in a fleshy pink color? Chick. A name with a wink to ass play? Double chick. A hint of bestiality along with piss porn? Fucking got it. Spiegelman knew that he had a hit on his hands and these would fly off the shelves. Provided those shelves were located in or around the trailer park homes of pedophiles who also had a thing for double entendre. <laughs> Doug Plug indeed. Leaky Lindsay had fluids coming from every orifice. Slain Wayne was a little kid in front of a fucking firing squad. 
Spiegelman could contain himself no more. He stood up from his drafting table, hastily unbuttoned his ink-stained pants, and began to rub his engorged cock on every blank sheet of paper. No longer was he merely drawing with his stupid hands. He was now fucking the garbage pail kids into existence. One by one, he shot hot rainbows of calm onto card after card. Ghastly Ashley, Dead Ted, Atom Bomb, a small child with a mushroom cloud shooting out of his head. Knowing that it would be quite some time before he could top the fuck upness of a reference to the pre-dawn radioactive Armageddon that had robbed the lives of countless thousands of civilians, Spiegelman scooped up his work and hightailed it straight to the top's offices. Bursting into Benson's office, they were both breathless. Spiegelman breathless due to running, Benson breathless due to autoerotic asphyxiation. As the person who greenlit fucking garbage pail kids was clearly into it. Art showed Benson the characters one by one. And the best part is, we'll make them stickers. We won't use glow, not glue, no. Just the tepid cum of the types of people who will actually buy these fucking cards. As he went on and on about Uzi Susie and unstitched Mitch, the victim of a botched surgery, because comedy. Art noticed another figure standing in the corner of the room. Who's that, he asked. Oh, that's Guy Brandon, replied Benson. Well, why is he just standing there giving a Nazi salute? Because, said Benson, that's the only way he can come. Make no mistake about it, Guy Branham has strong ties to National Socialism. <laughs> Said Benson. It's in the story. Story. Wondering what this aside had to do with anything. Art barely had time to think about as all of the middle management of the Topps Company came into the office. They dumped on the floor the massive cash advance for Spiegelman for creating what I again remind you is a pun-based series of trading cards about kids who are mentally and physically deformed. <laughs> Comedy gold. All the managers and sales associates took off their double-breasted suits and heavily shoulder-padded jackets for the ladies, because this was the 1980s, and they fucked on the money pile. No one even cared about the paper cuts that came from all the cash and trading cards, accustomed as they were to regularly boning on cardboard rectangles, as was, the, as was their want. And that's why I ran out of time. But I had to bring you a beer, come out here, and, and read for you five people. So thank you so much. Right. DJ Chambers. Who else is ready, round two? It's Caitlin Gale, ladies and gentlemen. I shall remind you that you can do better than that for Caitlin Gill. There it is. That's more like it. Madam? Oh, God. Way too much of this is going to get riffed. This is going to get weird. Hi, everybody. I don't watch this show every night or anything. In the not-too-distant future, next Sunday, A.D., there was a guy named Joel, not too different from you or me, in that he is a sexual being. <laughs> he worked for Gizmonic Institute, just another pretty face in a tight jumpsuit. He did a good job cleaning up the place. 
place, but his bosses didn't like him, so they shot a wad right into his face. And then they shot him into space. They sent him cheesy movies, the worst they could find. They made him sit and watch them all, and they monitored his mind. Now keep in mind, Joel couldn't control when the movies would begin or end, because he had used those special parts to make his robot friends. The robot roll call was Cambot, a total voyeur. Gypsy, a vacuum cleaner with a heart of gold. Tom Servo, a beaky gumball, a beaky gumball dispenser on a Roomba. And Crow, a split bowling pin with a lacrosse basket thingy for a head. Oddly, it didn't occur to Joel to make any robots with sexual powers. With no special parts left and nowhere, no one there to touch Joel's special parts, his time and space was beginning to grow tiresome. Cambot felt bad for the guy, and he wanted to help. He thought about his options. He was a camera, after all. He wanted to help Joel without betraying the integrity of the doctor's experiment. He tried a little something. He pointed his powerful lens down to Earth, and when he saw what he was looking for... He sounded the movie sign. Joel and the bots rushed into the theater, but they were surprised. By what they saw, this was not a classic like Manos or Mitchell. This was not a latter-day classic like Puma Man or Boggy Creek 2 or Time Chasers or Space Mutiny or, uh, oh God, Hobgoblins. That's a great one. <laughs> no, this was different. Cambot had focused in on something down below. Something sexy. <laughs> or it might have been sexy 69 years ago. Cambot had focused in on an old house. He had zoomed his powerful lens through those walls and right into one private room where two elders were doing private things. Mounted atop one another to tired, old, earthly bodies rubbed against one another. I don't know if you know this, but STDs spread rampantly in old folks' homes. They be fucking... And Camp Bot found them. Total Bots didn't know what to do. They just did what they always did when they saw a movie on the screen. They talked about it. It looks like Santa Claus fell down into Jessica Fletcher, said Crow. <laughs> Is this Fifty Shades of Grey Pubes, Astro? And it was. But no, Tom said, I think it's wrinkles inside Tom. Time. You laughed like I didn't flub that punch. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Joel stared at the screen quizzically. He felt a rising in his tight jumpsuit, but he wasn't ready to own that yet. He said, this is too much, too much dick from Cheney, and I didn't need to see Margaret Thatcher. The action got hotter. They could see the woman responding to the elderly man's touch. His gnarled hand with those gross old people fingernails pushing its way up her crumply, crinkly thigh toward her giant, enormous 70s and then 80s and then 90s and then 2000s and now millennial bush. Joel Mudge Crow. Bet that guy doesn't even know about Lou, but he churned butter for this instead. They were trying to kid, but these old people knew how to fuck. 
longer, and that's when he felt a claw on his leg. <laughs> Robots get hot too. <laughs>
gravity and it just floated before them. <laughs> they looked at the scene and Joe looked at Mike and said, that, that was a great fuck. Mike looked back at Joel and said it wasn't just a fuck. This is the satellite of love. Caitlin Gill. Keep it going for Senator Guy Brown, ladies and gentlemen. It was 9.03 on February 1st, 2016, as Jill stepped onto the Asila Express, the sleek, comparable train which connected the United States Eastern Seaboard from Boston to Washington, D.C. Well, beyond Washington, actually. All the way down to Wilmington, Delaware. <laughs> Delaware could be so frequently forgotten. The first date, yes, but a small one. Gifted with much, easy incorporation laws, a business-friendly bankruptcy system, two senators, and a lot of regret. Today, they would begin the process of returning to Delaware, and for Jill and the man she loved, begin the process of dying. Dr. Jill Biden reached back and gripped Joe's hand as they stepped onto the train and found their comfortable plush seats that smelled way less like homeless people than most train seats that you think of. His hands cold, stiff, full of shame. He hadn't made this trip in eight years. He'd hoped to never make it. He wanted to be an Iowa. It had always been Joe's dream to be America's most awesome president, a stark, unapologetic liberal of the people, a man whose willingness to propose a three-state solution to Iraq, whose humility while sharing a beer with a couple of union members, his vision in stretching the train lines of America to every metropolis and podunk town would make him America's greatest president, but also get him assassinated uh, two years into his second term. <laughs> Joe got really maudlin with stuff like that. You let the Irish drink, they gotta find an excuse to cry and fuck. That's what Dr. Jill had learned from 44 years of being married to one. <laughs> they sat in their private Amtrak car. The president's plane was known as Air Force One, his helicopter Marine Two, and the vice president's private Amtrak car had come to be known colloquially as Postal Service Two. <laughs> A space-age revolution in high fuel efficiency fixed uh, rail transit. In Joe's dream, dreams, cars like this would have eliminated the needs for cars, trucks, segways, and motor scooters. Children would take trains to school. Families would take the train to work. Young couples in love would go for a charming train ride along the beach. Joe wanted to turn America into Amtrak America, but he never would because of that bitch. As Joe thought of her, she appeared. Damn, this witchcraft thought Dr. Joe Biden. America's second lady had also, was also a descendant of Salem witches. Salem, a city Jill could have reached with just a five-hour ride on Amtrak with a few connecting bus routes, or with a, with a simple snap of her fingers because she was also a witch. God damn it, Jill, why do you have to go and embarrass me, asked Vice President Joe Biden. Hillary is supposed to be in Iowa, running a victory lap around Martin O'Malley and poor Bernie Sanders, providing the illusion of democracy to this slowly ossifying oligarchy, uh, where we wouldn't know what to do if we didn't elect a Bush or Clinton by, uh, oh, uh, if we didn't elect a Bush or Clinton, but you had to bring her here with your goddamn witchcraft. 
Yeah, that's right, Biden, said Hillary Clinton, who was pulling 40 points ahead of her nearest competitor in Iowa and who seemed poised to perform even better in New Hampshire. Your silly progressive vision of this country will never succeed. Not while Bill and the Bushes and I can keep control of this country for the oil companies. So long as we are in control, we will live in an America that is safe for gas-guzzling single-passenger automobiles. You know that you can never beat me in the primary, so you bow, bow down like the pussy you are. And I, and the international petroleum conspiracy I represent, will rule this land forever. We said if you stayed out of the public eye, we'd let you live the rest of your life in peace. But bringing me here broke that vow, so you better keep taking this train up to locomotive-loving Canada. Because if you still live in this country on January 21st, 2017, you might just end up having a little accident like my old friend Vince Foster. Also, how did I get here? I was just in a double-tree in Des Moines, ready to win the Iowa caucus on my cakewalk to the presidency. But then I magically appeared in a train car. You're here because of me cried Dr. Joe Biden, who I will remind all of you is a witch. Her spirit familiar, a flaming bird, burst forth from her chest and illuminated the upscale amenities and well-furnished wood of the train car's interior. You're here to thank my husband for his service, formally, said Jill. Wahoo? asked Hillary. What do you mean? Jill laughed. The thick, throaty laugh of a junior college English as a second language professor and tore the jacket from Hillary's back. Um, oh, I'm real stumped. <laughs> um, uh, and the maroon pantsuit jacket burned and sizzled into nothingness as her fingers touched it. You're going to thank Joe by putting on a little show, said Jill. Jill thrust her fingers down the centimeters and centimeters between Hillary's waistband and her pussy. She forced her fingers in, which may seem like not an okay thing for one person to do to, one, for, to another, but Jill knew the truth. Her witch's telepathy and the basic understanding of human beings she developed as a junior college instructor made clear to her that Hillary, so often forgotten in the sexual exploits of her own marriage, had always dreamed of joining the ecstatic rites of sexual liberty which uh, had defined Jill and Joe's life at the vice presidential mansion at the Naval Observatory. Hillary moaned. A lifelong champion of women's reproductive rights, she had never truly exerted choice over her own vagina. Bill's needs, Bill's wants, those have been the cruel patriarchal rule of her family, even during the times when she had been in the Senate or America's Secretary of State. But as Jill's hands, warm with love and the power of the earth goddess Gaia, filled Hillary's pussy, she found the flush wetness she'd lost so many years ago during her menopause. Joe was naked. He was a senator and diplomat, but when things got freaky, Joe knew how to get freaky. He unbuttoned Hillary's pants, then slowly pulled them down. Then her specs, revealing a bright white circle of an ass, a full moon like the one Joe lay under the first time he slaughtered a goat over her as part of the festivities that she described as Wicked Yom Kippur. Joe slid his pink, thick, 24 centimeters of penis into Hillary's asshole. Joe also believed in the metric system. He believed in lots of shit they did in Europe, but he did it while drinking beers and riding motorcycles and being a working class Catholic, so that made him super relatable as a liberal. Hillary Clinton had actual liberal cock inside of her for the first time since Wellesley. This wasn't a Democratic leadership conference guy like Bill. This wasn't some compromise hungry moderate. It was a man who believed in railways. Her body released and she let him slide back and forth within her bucket, the buttocks. 
She'd never let Bill fuck her in the ass, let him do that with his sluts and trade. But now, finally, Hillary was her own woman, her own candidate. She decided what went into the Oval Office and the chocolate starfish. <laughs> Hillary lifted her mouth to Jill's titties and began to drink her witch's milk. It filled her with life. It did not make her younger because it's not about your perception of her. It just filled her up with femininity she'd forgotten, a power that centuries of patriarchy had stripped from all non-wicked women. She reached up Jill's skirt and started rubbing her mom's pubis, feeling the rough pubes and slick sickle moon of her labia. That's it, Hillary, said Jill. You played the game. You played it the whole way. Yale, Arkansas, Washington, even in the Senate and at Foggy Bottom. But now... Jill removed her hand from Hillary's pussy, and Joe prepared to slide his dick into her pussy. But Jill was like, no, Joe, you can't do that. She wasn't clean back there. Let's have some respect for Hillary's vaginal flora. Um, okay. So then they put some antiseptic soap on Joe's dick and cleaned it off, but he stayed hard because he's a working-class Catholic, and fuck knows their dicks work. And Hillary kind of lost her arousal by that point in time, but once the dick was clean, Jill and Joe started working on Hillary again. They shoved her into a spacious, beautiful Asila Express seat, reclined it, and Jill plugged Hillary's pussy as Jill sat on her face and let Hillary down in the vast feminine expanses of her snatch. You're not Bill's tool anymore. You're not a stealth feminist. You're not a stealth liberal anymore. Now you are destined to be our leader, to bring back the rule of the moon and the earth, to return us to environmentally sound policies, to gift us with an America with equal rule of law for all races and a top tax bracket of 80% that will drive patriarchal dickwads like Mark Zuckerberg into poverty in the next five years and make black single moms the most powerful people in this country. You're going to be our first female president, Hillary. Yeah, but you're also going to be the first competent liberal in the White House since Lee Harvey Oswald put that bullet in JFK's skull. <laughs> Hillary exploded like Mauna Loa. And as uh, Hillary exploded, Jill pulled his dick out of her ripe, loving pussy and shot his cum, which formed a shape, a shape that would mean nothing to you or me. But Joe knew instinctively. It was a map of train lines, uniting all of these United States, all 50, including an extremely costly tunnel to Hawaii. As they pulled into the Wilmington Station, Hillary swiped away the thick ropes of cum, which would represent so much infrastructure and so many jobs for this nation. She felt like she, she truly belonged to herself for the first time since she married that cheating dickbag in October of 1975, and she knew that she was ready to get this country back on the rails. Then Dr. Jill turned into a raven, because she is a witch. Doug <laughs> Brown, guy, hey guy, Doug Brown. Scott Brown, guy, Scott Brown, guy, come back, come back, real quick, real quick. Did you think your topic was Amtrak? Yes. <laughs> what was it? This is the greatest moment of my life, I just want to point that out. It took me half of that story to figure out that you misunderstood Anne Frank. <laughs> Guy has done this show more than almost anyone, and we have this 
running gag that he always gets fucking softballs. And tonight I'm like, for fuck's sake, there's no ball softer for Guy Brown than Anne Frank. The Judaism, the feminism, <laughs> the being a 13-year-old girl discovering her own body. Oh, the shit I would have done to Peter Van Damme. I feel... simultaneously. You understand? They also went to the People's Temple together every week. It was just a cool place. It was like church, but better. Uh, because the ones that they grew up in church uh, were very judgmental. And the People's Temple's model was uh, helping people in need. This guy named Jim Jones started it in Indianapolis. And they found out about it when they went to the Indy 500 junior year. And they hooked up with these two dudes named Robin and Carl, who were members of the People's Temple. leaving the raceway headed to the porta potties together because they were like so drunk on bush beer. <laughs> and their bladders were about to burst and they did everything together, especially go to the bathroom. <laughs> it was then that they overheard Carl and Robin talking about how they had some volume and the girls wanted to take, oh, that they wanted to take because the car noises were scaring them. The girls love volume, anything that poisons their bodies really. They loved getting fucked up. So they forced their way into the conversation and gobbled up all their volume. They woke up the next morning pantless and with pamphlets about the people's temple gently resting on their tits and a note from the guys that said that they loved hanging out but they had to move to Guyana to do Jim's work. The girls were like so bummed that they wouldn't be seeing their new boyfriends anytime soon. But formerly their backpacking trip adventure to make, to, to make it back to the loves of their lives, Robin and Carl. 
Sure, they couldn't remember any of the precious moments they shared, but if their pussies were into any indication of how they felt about Robin and Carl, their feelings were dripping wet. <laughs> the girls finished school, got their new degrees in nutrition, and worked their butts off all summer at the bagel hole. And when the summer was over, Marie and Kristen both saved up enough money to buy their tickets to South America and the L.L. Bean backpacks that they had embroidered specially with class of 78. It was time to start their adventure. They boarded their direct flight, flight 786 from Indianapolis to Guyana. <laughs> it was a 34-hour flight to the girls. <laughs> so the girls made sure they sat next to each other to finger each other furiously to sleep. That's how they always fell asleep. They did everything together. So... They arrived in Guyana so tired but fueled by their love for Carl and Robin, who were essentially strangers, that they, <laughs> that they met over a year ago near porta potties when they were determined to find them. They had a map, their backpacks, their nutrition degrees, and their advantage uh, was that they set out to find the camp they had read about in the People's Temple Packlet. It was much, much hotter than they thought, and the map they had didn't have roads. <laughs> Marie said she wanted to lead the way. Her tits had always been her compass in life, and they had gotten her everything. So why wouldn't they get her and Kristen to Jim Jones' compound so they could live their life in utopia? Well, Marie's tits kept leading them in the wrong direction. And they ended up in a thick jungle, and the heat was intense. So intense that Kristen passed out. So Marie looked in her backpack for water, and she only found uh, that she had packed seven summer sausages from the bagel hole. So she dragged the summer sausage under Kristen's nose to wake her up, but it didn't work. She only started like a little piggy, and her voice <laughs> and her, her voice got raspier and more dry. So Marie put her tit in Kristen's mouth, and that worked. <laughs> Kristen woke right up and sucked so hard that milk came out. <laughs> It was enough milk to fill up four 24-ounce water bottles. <laughs> so they gathered up their strength by drinking milk, cooling off under a jungle plant, and for good measure, jamming a summer sausage up each other's pussies. Well, I mean, Marie did it first, and they did everything together. So Kristen did it too, but pretty begrudgingly. They walked for what felt like two weeks. It was a bummer that they lost track of time because they were pretty sure they missed Halloween. And that was like Marie's favorite Halloween holiday. And they even packed outfits too, hoping that they could make it to the compound in time to celebrate with a feast and dancing like the pamphlet talked about. It was dusk when they heard a faint voice in the distance. It sounded like a voice over the loudspeaker, kind of like the announcement that the principal would make in high school when the girls got down called down to the office for getting in trouble for uh, fucking their teachers. <laughs> Except this voice seemed stern, and it was saying stuff like, Drink! Drink! We don't have much time before the day, or we need to be ready for their arrival. Drink it! Drink it! <laughs> Marie got, like, really excited. We're, like, so close, and they must know we're coming because they're already pre-gaming. <laughs> Okay. It was so hot 
that Kristen was getting delusional and she couldn't see straight anymore, so Marie gave her the last bit of the milk so she could make it a little bit further. We have to get to the party. It's our favorite holiday. Kristen, don't fuck this up for me. I need to see Robin. Robin's mine, she said, almost barfing up Marie's breast milk. Okay, fine. Fine. I don't care. You can have him. I just need to get laid. And I'll take Carl, but we need to get there because this jungle... Because we need to get there before this jungle dries up every last drop of my pussy juice. The girls got to the edge of the commune and couldn't be more excited. Sweet relief! They made it to the People's Temple commune in Guyana. They stumbled to the entrance, and there were big guys with machine guns at the entrance. These bouncers are huge, said Kristen. And really cute, said Marie. They were about to give them their IDs, but the bouncers just like fell over before they would even look at them to see that they were in fact 22. Marie walked a little further, curious about what Utopia looked like. And Kristen instinctually grabbed one of the machine guns and quickly changed into her dirty, hairy costume. She wasn't about to get caught without a costume at this Halloween party. It was the best Halloween party of all time. She was kind of falling behind when she heard Marie shriek. What was going on? She caught up to Marie only to find that she had shrieked out of pure joy. They found a, a bunker labeled Men Only. And they walked into it because they loved having sex with men. <laughs> Inside, they found over 60 men just laying there. <laughs> Holy shit, this is the best Halloween ever. The girl to guy ratio is like out of fucking control. This is exactly what they like. So they walked over to the limp bodies, like lifting up arms and stomping their legs, trying to find Carl and Robin. But everyone was just laying there asleep, probably because they drank too much. What? <laughs> they hoped Robin and Carl had like at least maintained composure enough, or that they were just like playing dead for their Halloween costumes. <laughs> they got to the last bunker of overcrowded bunk beds and found Carl and Robin laying there, just sort of moaning in agony, probably because they were just wanting to get fucked so badly by their long-lost lovers. Marie was so excited to get more drinks, so she ran to the common area. Uh, she yells from there, it's purple! It's so cool! <laughs> Kristen couldn't wait any longer because she had a little bit of pussy juice left in there and she needed Robin to stuff her up. <laughs> so she began to undress and Robin was already hard and he had been laying there motionless for at least six minutes, which she didn't know was actually rigor mortis, but his dick was harder than it had ever been in real life. But... <laughs> But this was death. And Kristen wrote his cold, hard, dead cock like the hot devil or pussy had turned into. <laughs> the Guyana jungle was so hot that her pussy melted Robin's dick inside of her. And she started to feel like really relaxed and drunk almost. It was as if Robin's dick was filled with drugs. And they used, it's kind of like reminder of the time they used to soak tampons and vodka back at Uwe Pui. <laughs> She heard Marie's voice faintly in the distance saying, Stop, Kristen! They're dead! Everybody's dead! It's a poison dick! Don't sit on his dick! Kristen's... Kristen's left... 
Kristen's last words were, Jesus, Murray, you jealous fucking bitch. I thought you were my friend. <laughs> Trying to make up life so I can't have this perfect cock just like stuffing me up like a summer sausage. <laughs> and then Kristen picked up the machine gun she got from the bouncer and pointed it at Marie and she said, Make my day, bitch. <laughs> Make my day. Beth Stelling, let's get everybody from round two back to the stage. There they are. All right, I want to again remind you of what everybody read, and then we will vote on a winner. We started with TJ Chambers with the Garbage Pail Kids, then Caitlin Gill, hold on, then Caitlin Gill with Mystery Science Theater, Guy Branham with Anne Frank. <laughs> and Beth Snelling with the Jonestown Massacre. So, pick a favorite starting with TJ Chambers' Garbage Pail Kids. Caitlin Gill, Mystery Science Theater. Guy Branham, Anne Frank. And best selling Jonestown Massacre. I believe that's Caitlin Gill, your round two champion. That does it for round two. To hear round one from this show, you can go back and download episode 140. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It's a big help as our positive comments. And for more details on upcoming shows, you can follow me on Twitter at Brian Cooking or the show at CE Fanfic. See you next time. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 